This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 24, for Thursday, January 26, 2006. Listener questions and answers. Hey, Leo, glad to be with you again. We're in the studio at uh, Call for Help. So, uh, yeah, physically together rather yeah. than by Skype this time. <laughs> Steve, Steve, you just cracked me up. He brought essentially an entire radio production studio with him in his suitcase. It was heavy. I'm not doing this again. <laughs> two PR40 mics dragging it through through the airport. The two uh, arms. You have uh, you have a pop filter for your PR40. I mean, we're just really we're we're rocking here. Um, so as we do every uh, fourth episode, we're going to answer your questions uh, and uh, and kind of follow up on things that Steve raised in previous episodes. Shall we just get right into them? Yeah, let's right. go. A couple of questions uh, right off the bat about Hamachi, which was the uh, VPN client that you uh, use and recommended. Tony from Northeastern PA said, on many forums, there's been a great deal of disagreement about Hamachi and the need for hardware and software firewalls. Hamachi rocks, as you've said, but what, if any, dangers does it use its use open us up to. And Greg from Goodyear, Arizona kind of follows on on that. He says, if I'm using Hamachi on my laptop through a friend's open wireless network to connect to my machine at home, how secure am I? Yeah, that, it, those are great questions. Um, Hamachi, I'm just so stoked that we discovered this thing because people are using it like crazy. I mean, they, they really love what it does because it allows them to create really secure point-to-point links between machines. However, the, the the bit of confusion, and we talked about this when, when we first did our show about Hamachi, is that it's a very powerful connection. You're literally giving somebody else an IP address on your machine, and, and you're connecting. So it makes sense for a personal use to, like, hook your own machines together. But I was wondering, you know, like, for example, gamers. A lot of gamers are using this in order to create their own little five-dot LAN systems. But it does mean that other people are connecting to your machine just like they were in the same room plugged into a hub. So you're on a LAN together. When you say five-dot, that's the address range that it uses, five-dot, something, that, something, that, something. Exactly. But, but the other thing that's important is that even while you're using Hamachi, your machine still has its original IP. So, for example, um, in in uh, Greg's case, where he's at a friend's house using his laptop and using Hamachi to connect to his machine at home, he's still on his friend's wireless LAN, so he's got his wireless IP, which is still keeping him exposed from that standpoint. So essentially what's happening is he's putting his home machine on the local LAN, uh, as visible as any other machine, right? Um, only to, if he had some Trojan software on his laptop, that would be a problem. have to be on the connecting machine, yeah. not anywhere else on the LAN. The way to think of it is that when you're using Hamachi, your system has its original IP and the ah. Hamachi IP, not the Hamachi IP instead of the original IP. So the first the, the first caller's question about firewalls, the, 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 the short answer is, yes, you still need a firewall. But not to protect your Hamachi connection. Exactly. Well, not, not to protect the, the data flowing over the Hamachi connection. But, for example, say that you, say that you were going to be using Hamachi for gaming and you wanted to tie 
10 machines together. Well, you would it would make sense to use your firewall to only allow gaming traffic over the Hamachi IP. Mm-hmm. So you really do want to use the fire a software firewall to protect access through Hamachi if you don't trust somebody on the other side. That is if you don't trust another the, the Hamachi computers you're connecting to, you you still want to keep your guard up. And so because Hamachi looks like a standard internet interface and most firewalls will allow you to to permit traffic by interface that is by connection you could say only allow the gaming traffic over my my Hamachi 5.xxx IP and you certainly still want to have a firewall to protect your non Hamachi IP so in the, let's say you're using a router as a firewall in the router uh, port forwarding what port does Hamachi use? Well, see that see that that's actually a really perfect example because by using Hamachi, you are basically penetrating your router's inherent security when you create a, a, a Hamachi tunnel. Because it's an outgoing thing, you don't have to. Well, and it allows forward. incoming traffic once you've established the tunnel. Once you've established that tunnel, so mm-hmm. so the tunnel is made outbound through your router. But once you've got the Hamachi tunnel, inbound traffic is allowed and is not of any kind. Con- is exactly of any kind and is not controlled. Basically, it so is. So the router and firewall don't even see it. Exactly. Well, now your so- your your router cannot see it. <laughs> Your software firewall will see it, and so you have it, to tell the firewall anything particular, like watch five dot. Yes, in fact, normally if you look at a, at a software firewall, if if you've got one that is about inbound blocking, for example, you may have to deliberately permit Hamachi to to access out to the rest right. of the internet. Right. So it'll so, give you that pop up most of the time. It says, exactly. Uh, Hamachi's trying to access the internet. Do you want to be able to Well, to and for it? example, say that you were a, 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 a like a high volume uh, Windows user like as as most are using Windows XP Service Pack 2, so you've got the Windows firewall on. You won't initially be able to get any incoming traffic. Now, the the non-secure solution is to simply remove Hamachi from the firewall completely. Right. That's okay as long as you trust the computers that are on the Hamachi network. But what you probably really want to do is to specifically allow only the traffic, that, like the gaming traffic or whatever. Open if, the port that that game uses. Exactly. Forward that port through the, that only the game is going to need. Otherwise, anyone who you're connecting to in their Hamachi network has complete access to your machine. So you'll give your software firewall permission for an outbound connection to Hamachi from your system, and then you may say, but don't allow any incoming traffic except traffic over the port, specific port that that game or whatever thing you want to use. Right. I mean, it, it is... It is. <clears throat> these are great questions because this is a confusing topic. Is it documented on the Hamachi site, or do you there, if, if, figure it if out? If someone will go through the forums, there's not a lot of documentation, like static documentation on the pages, right. but there's been a lot of dialogue in the Hamachi forums, and that's a great place to learn about you know all these Hamachi specifics. Norbert Davis asks... I, is it Norbert in Davis or Norbert Davis' his name? Like Norbert Davis is his name. Okay. I've loved the Zone Alarm software firewall because I can see what programs are asking to talk back to the mothership. That's that outbound traffic protection right. we were talking about. Really the only real reason to run a software firewall. Uh, however, Zone Alarm has become bloated in its code, consumes a lot of resources, and does things I don't need. Can you recommend a good freeware or shareware software firewall? I run Windows XP and need something dependable but lightweight. You know, it's funny. Earlier on in our podcasts, and this was months ago, I 
referred to two firewalls that I liked a lot, and that's Tiny and Cario. We had a lot of people who wrote back and said, wait a minute, they're both being discontinued. And it turns out that they were sort of partly being discontinued. They, they were changing their nature. I did some research about six months ago on the next versions of my, le- my little leak test freeware, going to be leak test version 2 and version 3, that we're going to be looking at sort of next generation threats aside from what my little first leak test did. From looking at all the firewalls out there, my two favorites were Tiny and Cario. At which the time. Is, at the time, which is what I mentioned. Okay. The really good news is Alex Eckleberry of Sunbelt Software is a, is a good guy. Sunbelt Software is down in Florida. They've got a bunch of, of, of security and privacy-related applications. He liked Cario so much that he bought it. Oh, neat. So Cario has a new home, a new publisher. And then they've renamed it to Sunbelt and Suspenders? It's... <laughs> Um, it's uh, they're leaving the name Cario because I guess he got the rights to that too. It used to be, I think it was forty four ninety five or forty five or something. He's dropped the price to nineteen ninety five. Right. And through March of this year, he's he's like having a a we bought a new firewall special. <laughs> I guess we call it a fire sale. Um, <laughs> firewall sale fourteen ninety five. Now the free version is really all anyone needs. Cario does a number of oh, so things. So they're still doing a free version. Yes, and they will oh. always do a free oh, version. Great. I think it's a it's four point. I don't know, 4.1 point something, you know, it's got the versioning that changes frequently, but it's being kept up state-of-the-art. Um, it does pop-up blocking and cookie handling and some, some, some nice additional features. It also does something which is increasingly important, which is it deals with rootkit-type behavior. Mm-hmm. It watches processes that are trying to start other processes, mm-hmm. and so it will catch many sorts of malicious behavior that you're typical standard firewall will not catch and i think even the free version has that it it, it it's the cookie handling and pop-up blocking and things that are that, that you get extra in the paid version but even the paid version is 14.95 through the end of march so anyway if Aren't i had recommending to, this for people who already have routers well there are okay routers will protect you from any external intrusion and XP Service Pack 2's built-in firewall, which is free, protects you similarly from any external intrusion. There are a lot of people who really like knowing what's going on in their computer, and they they want, when they're running a new program, they want a a software firewall to alert them when this program is trying, as as, as this caller asks, to phone the mothership, you know, to phone home. And so, in fact, it's the way I found... The very first spyware I encountered was I was beta testing the original Zone Alarm, and it popped up something saying that that TS AdBot was trying to use my internet connection. Well, I didn't know what that was or that I had anything like that in my machine. So, I mean, I was really glad to have it for that purpose. Do, do current uh, attacks, Trojans, turn off software firewalls? Well, that's one of the problems when you have a, a, a firewall as pervasive as Service Pack 2's um, firewall in Windows XP is it's not invulnerable because any software that gets into your machine 
pretty much can do whatever it wants to inside of your machine. So it could disable it. So it certainly could disable it. And I mean, and there, the the firewalls have been in this in in sort of the standard, you know, like antivirus, virus, cat and mouse game. Here, it's like the 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 Trojans versus the firewalls game, where where the firewalls are continually trying to strengthen themselves against new ways to be turned off. So you really want to keep stuff out of your computer, because once something gets in, you're pretty much in trouble. (laughs) Which begs the question, what do you need outbound protection for? I mean, I don't disagree. It is more hassle because things are popping up asking if you want to give them permission. The firewall will learn if... It's okay for this application yeah, like Internet Explorer, yeah. Outlook Express, and so forth, yeah. or, and, and Skype, and so forth. Um, I am not a user of an outbound firewall because I pay a lot of attention to my, machine, to my machine. I'm very careful with what I install, but personal firewalls are very popular. People are constantly writing saying, what's the best personal firewall? So, so there there's the answer. It's a Karyo. It's, it's going to live on from, from now on at Sunbelt Software. Uh, there are great people, and they've dropped the price down, and they're going to keep it current and, and you know fix the bugs and so forth. Excellent. Dylan in San Francisco writes, is there anything I can do to stop recreating the same adware tracking cookies on my PC? For instance, uh, you know, I'll run SpyBot adware, uh, Microsoft's Defender on one day and remove all the problem cookies. Then the very next day, I'll run the same programs and they're back. Well, as, as you and I have talked about before, a lot of the so-called spyware or or bad cookies are just stuff that your system collects. You know, some of these AdWord tools get a little carried away in trying to demonstrate their effectiveness in talking about, you know, or in, in discriminating what's bad and what's good. So It looks great if you say you had 60 infections and I removed them all, but they were all cookies. 432. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear people talk about these insane numbers of yeah. stuff that was found and it's like okay not all of that is bad so what should you do should you, you it's it's kind of unusable to use the net without cookies you've got to leave cookies on. well and you and i have talked about this before we're, we're going to talk about this in detail in an upcoming podcast but essentially what's happening is third-party cookies are what the what these That's things the are detecting like yeah. double click cookies add, and add cookies and yeah. add cookies yeah. All, as we have discovered, Leo, um, actually, it's when, when we were doing a, a call for help show. We looked at the various browsers. All browsers today, by default, enable third-party cookies. That's what you want to turn off. In Opera and in, in Mozilla and Firefox, there's normally a checkbox that says allow third-party cookies or, for, or foreign cookies or something. Right. Yes, you want whichever the... the it's, so cookies from it's, originating site only is what you really want. Yes. And Internet Explorer, it turns out, doesn't have an easy way to do that. They've got a very scary button down in their configuration dialog that says advanced, as if, oh, I don't know if I'm old enough to press that. Um, it turns out, just push the advance button. No, None of their default cookie handling actually handles cookies the way you want. When you press the advance button, you get a simple dialogue where you can say, allow first-party cookies, mm. deny third-party cookies, okay. and problem over. And that's a large part of, of, of what... Of, of the debris that keeps coming back into someone's system after they've like cleaned it out. And that's really the only risk from cookies is these third-party images of third-party cookies. Those are the real risks. Right. So just don't let those load in your right. phone. And then you don't have to delete the rest. And if they come back, it's not a big deal. Right. Charles writes from Katy, Texas, asking, with U.S. government NSA eavesdropping and spying so much in the news, do you really think that SSL, SSH, and other things we think are safe 
are truly safe from the folks who you know have this high-end stuff and big computers like the NSA? Um, can they can crack through this stuff? Can't they? No, no, no. Um, there are the good news is academic people and cryptologists with who are not part of the NSA with no axe to grind have have developed this this current state of the art crypto we understand exactly how it works and why it's uncrackable for example it just um, takes that long to factor prime numbers well, period uh, or to <clears throat> to take the log of a really huge exponent mm-hmm. the the, the diffie hellman key exchange operates by taking a large uh, raising a large number to a large power now, you can throw a lot of computer power at it but these if you get enough bits in your encryption it's still going to take to the end of the universe right the 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 beauty of cryptography is that it seems complex and you know mysterious to us to the cryptographers it's not you 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 take two really large prime numbers and you multiply them together and you get this really huge number now it turns out that that cracking crypto is a matter of finding out what the two primes are that made up this really right. huge number. There's no fast way to do that. I mean, people have that, studied that could this happen thing down the road. Some brilliant mathematician could crack there this could by be coming a up a way to do it. But, but we would right all now, know. Yeah. Yes. So so the beauty is it's not like this is based on some reliance on aliens or or something <laughs> or chaos or yeah, exactly something bizarre that we don't understand. We know why right. it cannot be broken in a feasible time, right. and the NSA may not be happy about the fact that they that they would have to they put were. on amazing supercomputers right. to crunch something for a year to crack it. But um, it really, I mean, every, everything we know says nobody can do this. You're, you're okay. You really even, are. Even the spooks can't do it. Because, again, it's, we know why it's safe. Right. It's not like it's safe because no one's broken it yet. we say so. Exactly. <laughs> we know what it takes to break it, and it just takes too long. What what is the minimum bit length you you recommend? 128 bits now. If it's that big, 128 128 bits of symmetric cryptography. Now we're going to be doing very shortly here a really nice podcast explaining symmetric and asymmetric and public keys and how all that stuff works. But 128 bits of symmetric symmetric crypto is plenty strong. When, <clears throat> I'm going to throw in some of my questions here because I when you talk about SSL you talk about 128 bit, but when you talk about uh, uh, RSA encryption. You talk about a thousand twenty-four, two thousand forty-eight. Yes, that, are those comparable? What um, the and, and even SSL will have a ten twenty-four bit component because because those those, those protocols use both public key and private key that, that is asymmetric and symmetric crypto so so the the initial key exchange where, where, where you, which you're using for authenticating a remote server that uses a, a public and a private key pair because though that type of crypto is fundamentally less secure the way you strengthen its security is by ramping the bit depth up high so 1024 bits and in fact I'm using open uh, open VPN in 20 48-bit length, just because 
Why not? You can. Yes, exactly. And I mean, that's just ridiculously strong. It can slow things down a little bit, but not significantly. Well, and the actual crypto operations, and this is what, what we'll talk about in, in detail later, the actual crypto operations for bit lengths that long are so slow that you cannot afford to do it with your actual bulk data oh, that you're shipping back and forth. I see. So, so that's just for the key. Exactly. And then the crypto is 128 bit. They use the public key uh, technology, the asymmetric key, just to exchange a, a 128-bit private key, and that keeps it private so that only the two of them know it. Then they get to use high-speed crypto that uses shorter key lengths and is super secure. That, now I understand. So one is for the public key, one's for the private key. Right. John in Sunnyvale, California has a complaint that I have. I share with John. I, I'm, always, I'm always giving you a hard time on this. He says, there's no way to find your password generator page from your site. Could you please put a link on the homepage so I can f- send friends there? Well, before answering this question, I have done that. No, have you? Yes. Our homepage has GRC's perfect password page or something like that. Right on the homepage. You've sc- always had to dig through your site. I know. It just it keeps growing, and I've never... It's, you should see my closet. <laughs> or no, maybe you shouldn't. Anyway. So, so there's no conspiracy theory here. I always thought, well, he just wants me to see everything he has. I, oh, that's I... good, too. Yeah. Oh, that, that's why, Leo. Yeah, <laughs> that's the reason. Actually, it's just grc.com slash passwords. That'll do it. That's all That's all it takes. Yeah. But for those who can't remember, grc.com slash passwords, if you can get to grc.com, it is there now you know, on the homepage. I know some good web designers. We're doing a redesign on Twit. You want, you want me to? I'm getting interested. You know, it wouldn't hurt. It wouldn't, yeah. <laughs> maybe then I do it all. Maybe then I'd get lost on my own web, on my own site. <laughs> you understand how it works. Paul in Athens, Ohio writes, "What's the comparative security of Windows, Linux, and Unix Mac?" This is a very common question. A lot of people say, "Oh, you Mac people, it's going to be just as bad as soon as Mac is as popular as Windows. They're just as insecure." Well, are they? Okay. To do justice to this, it's worth saying that Microsoft's Windows started out being a catastrophe. I mean, it was never designed for the Internet. Apparently, no one at Microsoft understood what it meant to even design an operating system for the Internet. I mean, for years and years and years, they had problems that were not, I mean, like, not just bugs, not mistakes. I I could forgive anybody. Yes, they're running open servers, you know, file and printer sharing, sitting there exposed. This was a... a corporate issue because Bill Gates didn't really think about the internet until late. He came to it very late. I remember when he well, suddenly had hit, the light went on, and he turned around. The whole company well, had a dime. Remember, MSN was going to be his right. AOL killer That's when everyone right. was doing dial-up. Right. He was going to have you know, and then the internet happened. And he said, "Whoops, we Whoa. need we need a browser." So no surprise. But have they been able to catch up? In other words, they didn't start with good security. Have they been able to fix um, that? They with, with security. The, the size of your code, the complexity of the code are always killers. And Windows is huge and yeah. bloated and very complex. I mean, it's feature-packed, but features are all potential security risks. In all fairness, Windows is getting so much better. I mean, the, 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 the change with XP and Service Pack 2, putting a firewall in that would prevent external intrusion and having it on by default, that was a huge win. Now, the the Mac, and to a somewhat lesser degree Linux, but but also Linux, the Mac, because, of course, it's based on Unix. Unix was the founding OS of the Internet. I mean, the guys who wrote 
TCP. They implemented it on the Unix platform. But I do have to point out that even though Unix was always a multi-user operating system and was permissions aware and they had passwords, they also, like everybody else, were kind of tilted in favor of openness. And some some of Unix was not designed very securely in the beginning. Right. But it well, is 30 years old. Well, and again, it's... It's thirty-five. Uh, it's evolving. the The problem is, anytime you do new stuff, you know, like like uh, PHP interpreters. PHP right. has had all kinds of security vulnerabilities right. because it was it was put together and and put out and tested. And but then were, people banged on and it. And then people banged <laughs> yeah. on it. Yeah. So. Um, so what's the what's the bottom line answer? I don't really think there, there is, is a simple summary. Yeah. I would say that Windows is far better today than than it ever has been before. That they are showing signs of finally figuring out what they need to do, and Microsoft understands security really matters. Mm-hmm. I'm still using a Mac. Yeah. Angie Bray of Venice, California writes, how and why are pop-ups triggered only when I open a browser? Does a malicious software rewrite the code for IE? I've noticed when a computer is hijacked or compromised in any way, it all starts when I open up a browser. Yeah. What's the deal? Um, well, that this is JavaScript or ActiveScript or some sort or of script. Or ActiveX. Or ActiveX. Some mm-hmm. sort of scripting technology. The, the, the problem is, and this was... This is something really that Netscape is responsible for because that's where this all came from. Was they they wanted websites, what is web servers that you visited with your browser to be able to make more dynamic pages than just these, you know, well, like my pages <laughs> on my website, which are just content and just sort of sit there Static. and you click links and you scroll around, but there's nothing fancy going on. It only on. changes when Steve opens up his HTML editor. And types ASCII and into my... Into, actually, it's my notepad that I do the, the web pages in. But, but many pages are not that way. They run scripts all the well, time. Well, and users want more functionality. So really, our browsers are much more functional because they are running scripts which it's, are provided to them by the websites they visit. It's client-side scripts that are the problem, though. Server-side scripts like PHP, like Perl, like uh, all... That's CGI. a very good distinction. That, yes. that is running on the server, not on your computer. Yes. And that's so, safe. So what happens is you go to a site, and not only are you downloading the web page content, you're also also actually downloading... A program! ...executable script code, which runs on your browser in your computer. And if it says, open a new window, that's what your browser does. Which is why Firefox might be a little bit safer from spyware because it doesn't have ActiveX or Active Scripting, so it, it's more limited in the things it can do. It's actually a dumber. Although browser. it's got JavaScript, right? It certainly has JavaScript, has and JavaScript, JavaScript is, is able to do these things right. as, as well. Um, I guess the point is, uh, in order to answer uh, Angie's, uh, Angie's question, is it's the site you're visiting that is doing this through your browser. So if you don't like that, don't you can either disable site. those features or don't visit that site. But it's not like the internet in general that's somehow right. tunneling through your browser. Well, but if you accidentally download spyware or if you have an ActiveX... Uh, oh, if you've got bad stuff. you can have a program running on your computer. It doesn't need your browser. can pop up stuff even when you're not online. That's another... That's really spyware, and that's a whole right. other conversation right. from pop-ups. Bert in Redford, Michigan asks, you mentioned that formatting a system and reinstalling removes most rootkits, but not necessarily all viruses, as some can reside on track zero or the master. Right, record. we did talk about that a few weeks ago. So will a low-level format or using the manufacturer's software to write zeros to the drive remove all information, including that track zero? There's set? a very cool free open source uh, tool 
called uh, Derek's Boot and Nuke, D-B-A-N. That's a must-have for everybody. Yes. Um, what this does is it, 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 it allows you to burn your own CD from an ISO. You can just put D-B-A-N into a search engine. Uh, it'll find Derek's Boot and Nuke. This thing creates a little bootable Linux that runs a scrubbing program. Which so, will do, by the way, good good disk erasing. So it's good if you want to really clear off your disk. Oh, it'll it'll do serious, like, overkill but it disk also- does a master boot record and all uh, absolutely so for example if, if you if you want to start over from scratch and have and absolutely know that nothing bad at all was on your drive boot and nuke it boot and nuke it um <laughs> or if you're decommissioning a computer you're you're going to give it right you know donate it to a, to a, to a school or something yeah. you know scrub the drive with right. derek's boot and nuke and there'll be just nothing left behind low-level format is not only not Advisable. It's not possible on modern drives. You well, used to be able to true low-level format isn't. Some manufacturers will allow you to trigger a low-level format on their drive. What they're doing is they're writing zeros throughout the entire drive. If your drive manufacturer lets you do that, that will That's erase the whole drive to zeros. It won't deeply erase it, so the NSA can get the data back if, if it came to that. You know, I but, asked uh, Simpson Garfinkel this because he he's the MIT graduate student who did the study of hard drives. They bought a bunch of hard drives on eBay and found passwords, ATM card information. All oh, sorts j- of stuff. just all in the clear right there. And I asked him, I said, do you really need to do this, you know, erase, rewrite, ones and zeros erase? He said, no, you know, not really. Yeah. <laughs> That's, you know, I don't know of any way. Even the NSA really. Right. Uh, but nevertheless, Derek and Spook and Nuke does do that, and yep. it's Boot and Nuke is free. Grant UC Berkeley writes, I can't use Windows Remote Desktop because I don't have XP Pro. To be a host, you have to have Pro. You can use it as a client with, with XP and 95, 98, even on a Mac, but the, the hosting is requires Pro. He, he said RealVNC has been suggested on the Hamachi forums. Is RealVNC secure? I use RealVNC, as a matter of fact, all the time. Yeah, it, um, uh the the VNC project was I think started by some AT and T folks. AT and T in the UK, yeah, yeah. UK. And um, it's a terrific solution if you need multi-platform. It's Linux, Mac, PC, so cross-platform. You're able to to run the the server side on one platform and the client side on the other. And there's also something called um, Tight VNC, which is a, a free version. That's what I use on Windows. Yeah, yeah. Um, Real VNC has. I use Chicken of the VNC on the Mac. By the chicken? Way. <laughs> chicken? Oh, of chicken the of the VNC. Oh my God, <laughs> that's very good. Um, there are there are three versions of real VNC. There's a free edition. There's a personal edition and an enterprise edition. The free edition is not secure. It, it will allow you to log on in a secure fashion using a a, a challenge passphrase handshake. But after you've done the log on, the actual data. Mm-hmm. is in the clear it is not encrypted so when we a, use this we set up a vpn first uh, establishing a, a tunnel an encrypted tunnel and then use vnc over the vpn and that, that's, that's secure exactly what i was going to say yeah. was that if you know the question was could i use this with hamachi and would it be secure then it would be absolutely yeah. and so you you could definitely use any version of real vnc even the free one over hamachi and it's going to give you you know good performance and hamachi will provide the security if you ever need to use real vnc outside of hamachi and you you certainly can you're you're probably going to want to use the personal edition which is thirty dollars and that allow and there's a trial period and all that and because it 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 invokes 
serious state-of-the-art encryption over your entire connection, both your logon and all communications afterwards. Brian in Toronto says, I never give out my name online. So how do the RIAA and the MPAA find me? How do they know my name and address? Uh, they, 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 they only have my IP address. How can I hide that? Well... First of all, they don't have your name and address. They only have your IP address. Well, they start out with only having your IP they address. They have to file what's called a John Doe lawsuit. Exactly. There are they're, they're, the, your ISP knows your IP address. Even even somebody like AOL, who is issuing IPs on a very short-term basis, they've got logs so that they know who had that IP address during which period of time. And so if something were to compel them, like a court order, and this is how the RIAA and the MP you know, the people who are going suing people who are doing file sharing, the way they get those is that they collect all these IPs, they go, they get court orders to to compel the ISPs to release the actual physical name and address of the person who had the IP either that week, in the case of, of like a cable modem that has a relatively static IP, or during a particular hour of the day, if you were like an AOL user. So, even though you feel like you got some anonymity, your your true anonymity has limits on the internet. When people use BitTorrent, your IP address is known. You wouldn't be able, any peer to peer. You wouldn't be able to do it if you didn't have an IP that somebody could hook up to. That's and, what it means. And the doing. RIAA and these other people who are trying to prevent this, they've invested serious technology in like creating IP scraping yeah, systems, like 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 yeah. exactly like fake BitTorrent clients and and fake Kazaa and. And, and all these clients that, that are being used for, for peer-to-peer sharing, they're able to get in and harvest who's got which files and what IP they are. Now, the, 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 part, the other part this of the question here... how can here, I hide my IP address? Yes, was how to hide it. There is a an interesting system called the, the Tor uh, system. It stands for the Onion Router. Onion routers are deliberate like proxy routers that allow you to send your traffic through them. If you just put Tor, T-O-R, into a search engine, you'll find the Onion Router project. There are hundreds of these routers set up all over the world, and it's actually being funded by... Um, the uh, our free speech folks, uh, the EFF. EFF. Yes, the EFF is currently hosting the site and financing the project because they believe in in free speech and and freedom of for use of the internet. Now, as long as these anonymizing servers don't keep logs, you're okay. And they, they explicitly do not keep they have logs. Have to destroy them. You, yeah. So so and, and and also you normally bounce through three or four right. or five of these things before you come out of the other end. And I mean, you know, you're that's, just untraceable at that point. That's it. Anonymizer works this way too, and that's one of the disadvantages of that is it does slow you down because yes. you're traversing a lot more miles. And, and the onion router system is free, so you don't have to pay for it, whereas you do for anonymizer. Right. Anonymizer, as you said, is a is a business specifically put on earth here to, to do that. To, to, exactly. You you have to pay them some amount of money per month, but the traffic stops there. It's 35 a year, I think. And they protect your identity. Uh, I also use an iPhantom, which does the same thing. Uh, you have, instead of your IP address, you have the iPhantom IP address. Oh, and iPig. The, the iPig system, the iOpus uh, iPig client, if you were using them to route your traffic, no one would be able to know who your real IP was. But I have to tell you that if a court order comes down... Most of these, at least commercial entities, are going to cave in. And if and if they say, who was using your system, unless these guys explicitly destroy logs so that they can't answer that court order, 
you're you're just as much at risk. Right. You know, and so you really should ask a commercial entity, what do you do with those logs? Do you keep track of who's using right. what what uh, services? And so, for example, uh, you know, grc.com, I keep no logs. I, I will turn them on briefly if I'm if I'm you know needing to figure out something that is wrong, right. but I don't log any of the traffic at GRC. I, should, I, I like that. We're going to get a hat for you. John's I keep no log. Get he no gets spam. no spam. You I, can have, I keep no logs. I keep no logs. Uh, I, you know, I should do that with my servers too. It, uh, you have IIS, so I can't ask you how to do it, but I'm sure on Apache there's a way to just say, hey, that server that that log gets turned off. Uh, oh either, yeah. Either doesn't get kept or gets just deleted. And right it lightens now. the load too. I could do it with Cron. Yeah, because it's. Really it's, it, those logs are huge. Huge. Last but not least, Joe from Iowa Falls, Iowa says, I have a question about wireless security. Is there a potential risk when setting up your WPA protected network as the key will be transmitted wirelessly? Pre-shared key. Well, it's called a pre-shared key because it's not transmitted wirelessly. There is no exchange of keys in this environment. The idea you have to is, ask me. <laughs> uh, well, you you um you have to use another. You know, technically, it's called a a a, a secure channel, which is just like writing it down on a piece of paper and <laughs> manually typing it into the That's other the end. Channel. That's the secure channel. Ask, no one is able. <laughs> no one's able to get you. Right. You know, f- f- from anywhere on the so internet. So the key is never sent over the internet. It is never sent over the internet, and in fact, derivative keys are used and generated on. On the fly, this is with that TKIP, the Temporal Keying Integrity Protocol, that WPA uses. The idea is that only if endpoints already know the key, which they they got because they were configured that way, not using any kind of radio connection or even network connection. So it's not like this challenge response thing where it says, what's the password? Here's the password. We're never sending them the password. It Absolutely ha- never. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And so, I mean, it, it is it has been engineered from the start the right way, unlike web encryption, which, as we know, is badly broken. Well, I thank all of you for your questions. There's, of course, many more than we have time to answer on a on a single podcast, but uh, we love doing this, and we will do it every fourth show. Yep, uh, conditions permitting. Next week, I uh, next week we're going to start with the long anticipated series: uh, how the internet works. It's only a month late. That's not. It's so been long. A, it's been a busy it's month. Been a busy month. There's yeah. been a lot to talk about. We're glad you listen to Security Now. We hope you'll keep listening every Tuesday at uh, twit.tv or or grc.com/securitynow.htm. In fact, Steve, I know you're, you get almost five thousand people a day download the podcast from your site alone. Or yeah, well, all of our audio files because I have an archive of everything that we've ever done, and here we are. We're at the end of our sixth month of doing Security a lot Now. There. Yep. Both in the high quality 64 kilobit as well as a, a very low bit rate 16 kilobit a bit for people who don't have the bandwidth. Uh, we also should mention that we know we are having some trouble with truncated files. This is due to the Akamai servers that our provider AOL is using. Uh, they went to Akamai because they were pushing 3.4 terabytes a day, and they had to. Uh, and uh, we know we're working it out, and we think that this will be solved soon. But if you do have, uh, if you have been getting truncated podcasts, just send me an, an email uh, saying, uh, you know, um, I'm having trouble with the Akamai. I need your IP address, your location. That'll help. And, and how big the file was that you did get, uh, that will help us track down which servers are not caching properly. And for what it's worth, I I serve the low bandwidth files from my own that's server. That's HTTP, so that's um, and, always complete. And I always make sure that that's correct. Yeah. So my, my, ha- my high bandwidth links do link to AOL, so you'll still have a problem. But if you did have a problem with a truncated 
um, high quality file. Right. Let Leo know, and then you can always get the the lower quality from me directly, and I know it won't be truncated. I think we're going to set up a BitTorrent version as well, so that there's at least always one good. We can't afford to to provide the bandwidth for. It. We just and thank goodness that AOL Music is there because if it weren't for AOL, none of this would be happening. We wouldn't have Twit Security now inside the net. None of these podcasts. But uh, I think I'm going to start doing BitTorrents of everything. So should something go wrong with the AOL, we'll have a backup. You'll always be able to get it via BitTorrent. And uh, I'm recommending a really neat uh, new uh, program uh, for downloading uh, these BitTorrents that makes it very easy to do. But I forgot the name. I think it's Firefly.tv. But you can go to the website. There's information on that at twit.tv. And, of course, Mark Thompson has BitPump. Which is his BitTorrent client, easy to use BitTorrent and client. nice, yeah. nice web uh, Windows uh, only. file managers. Oh yeah, Windows. Oh no, uh, Mac also. He did a Mac client. Yeah, Mark Analog X Thompson. Uh, that's right. <laughs> oh wow, Mark's really spreading his wings. Yeah, AnalogX.com. <laughs> now I know the world's almost come to an end. Uh, again, uh, transcripts, low bandwidth versions, and lots more information about everything we talk about available at grc.com/slash/securitynow.htm. And by the way, while you're at grc.com, don't forget SpinWrite, the ultimate disk recovery and maintenance utility if you've got a problem with a hard drive if you've got a file you can't recover please do yourself a favor get spin right i have it and i use it all the time makes it's it all possible program. at my end leo yes that's well it's our advertiser yeah yeah it's a it pays steve's bills we do thank our good friends at aol uh, radio who uh, not only broadcast this on their podcast channel but also provide us with the bandwidth for this at aolmusic.com and we thank you so much for joining us see you next time <laughs>